High Performance Podcast, where we share with you the stories, tips, tricks, and strategies of motocross and off-road racers, health and fitness experts, and everyone in between who has an inspiring story to share. This episode of the podcast, we were privileged enough to sit down with coach Rob Beams from Complete Racing Solutions. If you've heard of Rob before, you will know he is at the absolute top of the game when it comes to athletic preparation for motocross and off-road races, not just in America, but now he's reaching across the globe. So what I love about Rob's approach is he places a huge emphasis on his athletes' health and wellness before their results and everything he does not just backed by science, but it's backed by logic. So all of the stuff he talks about in this podcast makes logical sense to me, which is a very important part. So in this podcast, he shares with us heaps of knowledge and practical tools that you can use to maximize your results so you can live, train, and race at 100% of your true potential. Rob has also been very kind and shared some of his resources with us that you can actually put some of the stuff he talks about in this podcast into place with your own training. So if you'd like to get a copy of those resources, my email address is in the show notes. You can send me an email, or if you direct message me your email address on my Instagram or my Facebook accounts at 100% Strength, I'll be able to hook you up with them. So in the show notes, I've also put a link to Coach Rob's website complete racing solutions so he talks about this at the end of the podcast but if you go follow the link on that website that he talks about you can discover more about the training camps he will be running in australia in july if you live in australia i'd highly recommend getting along to these rob will be sharing everything you need to know to optimize your complete training program at an extremely reasonable price so i hope you enjoy this podcast as much as i did I hope you enjoy geeking out on this stuff as much as I do. As always, it would mean the world to me if you got some value out of this podcast, please share it with someone else you know who could use the information too. My goal, and I'm sure Coach Rob shares this common purpose, my goal as a coach with my business 100% Strength and also with this podcast is to raise the standard of athletic preparation in motocross and off-road racing in Australia. So we can not only improve the sport as a whole, but allow our athletes to reach their true potential on and off the bike. The only way we can do this is via education, by empowering our riders with knowledge. So the more people that hear this podcast, the better. So I'd be extremely grateful to any of you who could share it. So that's enough from me. We'll get into the awesome content from Coach Rob, and I'll talk to you all again on the next podcast. This episode of the podcast today, we've got Rob Beams on board from Complete Racing Solutions. How are you today, Rob? I'm doing great. How are you, Ben? Good to talk to you. I'm really good, mate. Appreciate you jumping on board, especially, I think it's nine o'clock over there for you at night, is it? Yeah, it is, but... uh... These types of podcasts are fantastic. I, I love what you're doing. I love your vision. I like the the, the niche that you're cutting out, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Thanks for working me into your day. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so, like I said before, I'm super feel super privileged to have you on board because I've been following your stuff for a little bit now, and 
really love what you do. So for the listeners out there that maybe don't know what Complete Racing Solutions do, can you give them a little bit of an outline? Sure enough. Uh, we've actually been in business for 34 years. Um, I've had the privilege of working with people like Ryan Dungey, Adam Cianciarillo, Ian Treadle, Jordan Bailey, the Martin Brothers. Um, the list goes on and on. And not to name drop, but um, I've been around the sport for a long time. We currently manage all of Ricky Carmichael's uh, amateurs at the Goat Farm. Uh, we also uh, help Ricky with his RCU University. We do some work behind the scenes with quite a few pros on the mental development and the nutritional program. Uh, we don't have a physical facility. What we do is we help them with the virtual side of things. We do, uh, like I said, the mental, the, the nutritional, the hydration, soft tissue maintenance, and we run that all the way through the amateur ranks. Uh, we own our own factory team. We, uh, we sponsor 10, <clears throat> excuse me, we sponsor 10 amateur riders every year where we provide them gear from head to toe, uh, bikes, the whole nine yards. And the reason why we do that is to try to grow the sport. So I'm a, I'll say this as humbly as I can. I'm a big fan of the sport. I love the sport. Um, I've been in it since 78. Can't get enough of it. Uh, very fortunate to work with a lot of big people, but I don't, I don't lean on that component. You know, it's nice to be able to call Jeff Stanton or Jeff Emig and just, you know, talk business or talk racing. Um, obviously the good guys at DMXS radio. And then, you know, we were over in your neck of the woods back in March and uh, we hosted a couple camps at Mount Kembla and uh, actually looking to come back in July of this year, we're going to do a level one, a level two, uh, some one-on-ones. And uh, while we're over there, we're probably going to spend a little bit of time with Ben Townley helping him out with some of his riders. So we're super excited. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds good. I'm, I'm thinking I'm actually going to try and get, uh, get along to one of those. I would love to. Great. That would <laughs> be up, awesome. Catch up in person would be, yeah, it would be awesome. That would so, be great. I'd love to work with you. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to catch up face to face and just, I, I, I've watched a few of your videos. I think I really like, um, that's what I was going to ask too. My next question, like you obviously actually do a bit of rider coaching as well at those camps. Um, is that part of the, I guess, the service you provide? You know, it's interesting you ask, Ben, because we've actually been doing it for about 20 years. Um, I've only reserved it for the professionals. And there's a, there's a lot of reasons behind it. First and foremost is, to me, the athlete off the motorcycle needs to understand the importance of functional strength and range of motion. Um, obviously, I'm a big follower of yours. I love your work. Um, I think that that's a component that people think doesn't matter. And to say it as briefly as I can, a faster motor and stiffer suspension is only going to bring to the surface your physical limitations. So what we've done for the last 20 years is we've worked with the pros to tie in that physiological side to the physics of a motorcycle. As humbly as I can say this, what we've seen is there's a bigger and bigger and bigger disjoint where you have a lot of ex-pros that don't have a physiological background that are trying to declare themselves as physiologists, uh, nutritionalists, sports psychologists. And I think that they've gone out of their wheelhouse. And I think that's a very dangerous place to go. You may have heard me say this on other shows before. My biggest frustration is I own a 250F. Just because I've read the manual doesn't make me equipped to spin wrenches for a factory 250 team. Mm. And I think that's that you're seeing permeating our sport at all levels is because I was an ex-pro, 
because I rode with ex-pros, because I was a great A-class rider, there's this demented mindset that, that makes me now a physiologist. Going back to your original question, that has caused us to make our on-the-bike training more and more available. Uh, we have three current facilities in the United States. We obviously have partnered with Mount Kemble there in Australia. We're going to work with Ben Townley and put a facility in New, um, New Zealand. We work with a guy by the name, ironically, of RV in Finland, and we work with a couple MXGP guys behind the scenes as well. So the on-the-bike has become a natural extension of our services because we've got an incredible process in the system for building strength, dropping body fat, increasing strength to weight ratios, increasing speed, endurance, and lactate tolerance. But there's that disjoint between taking what you can do off the bike and transferring it over to the bike. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. Um, when we were at Loretta's one year, that was a year that we were there with uh, Adam Sanserilio. And he was on super minis and we were there, we were working and a gentleman came over to me. He goes, I need your help. He goes, I'm frustrated. He goes, I send my son to a strength and conditioning coach. I send him to a sports psychologist. I send him to a nutritionalist. I send him to a riding coach. He's training at a facility and my son absolutely stinks. What's going on? Yeah. And it was, it was one of those situations where you realize a nutritionalist really doesn't understand moto. You understand that a strength and conditioning coach really doesn't understand exactly what you're doing, you know, that functional strength. You have a massage therapist or a, a stretching coach that doesn't really understand the nuances of pushing and pulling a 200-pound motorcycle at speed. So what you find is just a disjointed mess. And over the last 30-plus years, we've created a process in the system where we know what you need off the bike to be able to bring it over to the bike and you take a three-dimensional plane, the front and the back of a bike, the left and the right of a bike, and the top and the bottom, your functional strength needs to emulate exactly what you're doing on the bike. So, you know, just like yourself, you're very educated, you're very proficient at what you do. It's got to be very applicable to somebody who understands physiology before you can jump on to saying, here's what you need to do on the bike. What good is it for you to yell at somebody that they're dabbing their foot when they don't have the functional strength and flexibility in the hip to do what you're asking them to do as a riding coach. And to me, that's where there's the biggest gap. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I guess, especially too like that, the relationship you build with a rider is super important too. So when, if they're going to four or five different coaches and you're not sharing the same, I guess, concepts or beliefs, then it, it can get really disjointed. Right. It really does. And, I always empathize with the parents where the parents for the most part want the best for their child, but they don't know where to go to get it all combined. Yes, you can go to a facility, but the facilities and no disrespect to any facility. The problem with the facility is a strength and conditioning coach thinks his or her component is the most important. You have a nutritionalist who thinks his or her component is the most important and et cetera, et cetera. So what you do is even inside of a facility environment, very rarely do you get a lot of synergy amongst all. They say they do, but they really don't. Because when we work with an athlete, if their heart rate is elevated in the morning, we adjust the protocols for the day. Well, who's going to make that adjustment? Is the riding coach going to back off on the riding? Is, is the strength and conditioning coach going to back off? Now you're into a power struggle because, and then you get into the worst part. Well, he's tired because of him. Everybody starts doing the finger pointing. Yeah. And you know this with your profession, 
what ends up happening is the performance program at the end of the day always becomes the fall guy. I don't care who you are. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree for sure. Yeah, the bike could be a turd. You know, the rider could be doing everything wrong. But as soon as a rider doesn't feel it, it's got to be the performance program. And then you become the flavor of the month. And, and, and again, I've seen this at a factory rig all the way down to somebody working out of the back of their truck. It's always going to be the performance program at the end of the day. Either he's not doing it long enough, hard enough. He's not mean enough. He's not being different. You know, I, I've seen and heard it all. In, in all transparency, I've been fired for all of those reasons. I've been fired for not being mean enough. I've been fired for being too nice. I've been fired for not pushing them hard enough. I'll push you as far as your body shows through biofeedback indicators that you can handle more, but I'm not, like you said at the onset, I'm not going to do it at the expense of your health and wellness. Never, 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 never. I have a moral responsibility to you as a human being. I love people. I love helping people become champions and maintaining championship capabilities, but not at the expense of your health. When I see these riders uh, retiring younger and younger, I mean, what are we doing? We're literally chewing our best guys up. That makes no sense to me. No, exactly. It is. It's a, it's a very demanding sport. So if you're not across all of those things, you can get burned out really quickly, can't you? Well, it's that old adage, you're only as good as your last race, but yet you're expected to be there. Um, we were talking about this on another podcast earlier today, and that is this is the only sport and we, we have four verticals in our sport. We have an endurance division where we work with marathoners, triathletes, and mountain bikers. We have a speed and agility division, which is ball and stick sports. We have a general fitness weight loss. And we have a motorsports division. In the sport of motocross and supercross, it is the only sport where athletes are expected to be fast 52 weeks out of the year. Mm. There's no other sport like it. And if, if, if a young rider wants to take a little bit of time off, then the accusations come out that you're not dedicated, you're not disciplined, you don't have what it takes. So all the little negative chatter gets started. And it's just the most amazing thing I've ever seen. When I've got a professional triathlete, we get done with Ironman Hawaii, he or she may not do swim, bike, or run for eight to 10 weeks afterwards. They're going whitewater rafting, they're going rock climbing, they're going hiking. They're not worried, but you, you look at our sport, it's just grind, 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 grind. You know, the MXGPs do a better job of it because they don't tie in supercross. They have more outdoor nationals, but at least they get a block of time where they can regroup. And in all fairness, look at the longevity of Caroli. Yeah. Uh, I think it says it all. Look at the, look at the yeah, longevity absolutely. of Everett. You know, Everett's Caroli. The history speaks for itself. So we can either continue to ignore it or people like you and I can go out and try to preach from the mountaintops of what's the right thing to do. <laughs> well, that was a real, one of my questions I had actually, and I, you probably really already answered it. How much more difficult is it to train or coach a, a motocross racer compared to your triathletes? It's a really good question because what it really boils down to is the personality types. Hmm. If you look at a motorsport, particularly motocross, the answer is always stiffer suspension and faster motors. That's always an easy default. When you're looking at a triathlete, the motor is themselves. So they're a lot more in tune with realizing there's that fine line between overtraining and undertraining where you are the engine, you are the fuel, you are everything. Where 
we get over here and you can have a torn ACL and a rotator cuff tear and a concussion, you still can race the motorcycle. Yeah. You know? So to answer your question specifically, what I find is the, the personality of a triathlete is they tend to know everything and they really know nothing because when you're trying to take three disciplines of swim, bike, run, and then add nutrition, strength training, and soft tissue, there's so much to balance, they get overwhelmed. So they think they know it and they don't, and that hurts them. And then you have on the motocross side of things, because they hear words like lactate tolerance or they hear anaerobic threshold, they immediately plug their ears and go, oh, that's too complicated. I want to tap out. I'll just invest in SIFR suspension and faster motors. <laughs> and it keeps us in the perpetual problem, not realizing that the physical weakness on the bike is what's causing the bike to not run to its fullest potential. That's okay. What I do find interesting is when I have a young rider, 14, 15 years old, they can talk to me about compression, rebound, oil, all kinds of settings. Yeah. But then you ask them what their max heart rate is, and they look at you like you're asking them a foreign language question. Yeah, so oh, what, a, what a carb and a fat and a protein is or something like that. Right, yeah. And then if you say the word macronutrient versus micronutrient, oh, my goodness, you've lost everybody in the house. <laughs> They're like, all right, we're gone. We'll see you later. And, and that's what I always say to my clients is I want to give you the cliff note version. And I, I hate to say this because it sounds very cocky is just trust the process in the system. If, if you'll, if you'll invest in what I'm asking you to do, I'll show you that the results will come around, but that takes a huge leap of faith and not everybody's willing to do that for the right reason. Cause mm -hmm. they've invested in another person that declared themselves as an expert who really was in the wrong wheelhouse. They shouldn't have been doing what they were doing, shouldn't have been making the declarations they were making and ended up actually hurting the athlete, whether it's an amateur or a pro. And it's frustrating for me because in the pro element, I've picked up six different riders over the last 20 years where I spent the first two years literally just cleaning up what the previous trainer had, had ruined. And a couple, and I'll be honest with you, three of the six we weren't able to bring back. Their career was already done because they had such deep adrenal fatigue. No, no sex drive, night sweats, craving simple sugars, tired but couldn't sleep. When they come to me with those issues, you yourself being an expert would do the same thing. You need to sleep and eat, not do more work. Yeah, for sure. Their, their career was cut short. And people don't realize the long-term – look at what's going on with Roxon right now. What is Roxon talking about? I'm tired. I can't mm. – I have no energy. I can't go. Yeah. Now, I, I don't – I just in 100% public transparency, I don't have Roxon's phone number on my phone. I've never spoke to the guy. The only time I've ever spoken to him was when I was working with Dungey and we both were in the KTM rig. That's the only time. I'm just saying on the outside looking in, how can a guy be so tired and we're only halfway through Supercross? That should have never happened. Yeah. Never happened. Obviously, he's worked hard on rehab for his arms, but that's yet another challenge all in itself. Yeah, yeah, totally. So how do you combat that? Like, I think our Australian series is a, a lot different to yours over there we're not racing every weekend our series is like 10 12 rounds quite often so we i guess we have that benefit of being able to peak and taper in between them etc so for your guys over there like especially even the gncc guys who are racing for three hours every second yeah. weekend or whatever it is how do you i guess taper that volume in season for them 
the, the, the first thing that you've got to look at is, and you already elaborated on it, is what's the duration of the season. So, for example, what I love about GNCC is they race every other weekend. Now, I don't know the technical aspects of it, but if you think about it, if you're racing every 14 days, if you race on a Sunday, you can spend three days doing full recovery. You then can train for a seven-day window and then do a three-day peak coming into the race fresh again on a 14-day cycle. When you're dealing with the pro supercross guy, when you're racing on Saturday, traveling on Sunday, and then training Monday through Thursday, traveling Friday, racing Saturday, hit repeat over and over again, what we have to do is look at four seasons. The first season, nobody likes, and that's called the off-season. The next season is preseason, where you build a huge aerobic base and a huge strength base. The third season is pre-competitive. And then the final stage is competitive phase one, two, and three. So you have three small peaks through, uh, let's call it a 16 to 20-week period, i.e. January through April. So what we try to do with our athletes is make sure, and, I, and if I go too technical, you know your audience better than I do, please pull me back, okay? No, but no, big, go for it, go for it. I love it. <laughs> the, the biggest thing that we want to take a look at is if I've got to build an athlete from January 1st at Anaheim all the way through May at Vegas, we want to make sure that his, his fitness level gets incrementally better. You're seeing Marv Muskan do the exact thing. He had a knee injury. He was kind of forced into an extended offseason, which I think you're going to see really come to a head when we go outdoors. But you notice every weekend he's in that top five, so he's always in the hunt, but then he's just incrementally getting better and better and better and better, and he's literally coming into peak form mid-season, i.e. Supercross season. And that's the name of the game right there. But the part that people don't understand, and that's why I don't want to be complicated, if we're in competitive mode, the work started in preseason. Mm -hmm. This is where the biggest amount of work has to be done. Preseason sets the base with capillary beds, aerobic function, and physical strength. In pre-competitive, you drop in a little bit of speed work. And then in competitive phase, you're doing nothing but quality work. You, you cut your volume way down, but bring the quality way up. And in between the quality workouts, you just bookend it with food, sleep, massage. Food, sleep, and you just bookend it. But you have to have confidence in these first two seasons to make competitive let's call it comfortable and, and psychologically confident. Now you can imagine with your experience, it's difficult when you're telling a professional guy, Hey, I need you to sleep more. They're thinking you're there to just drive them into the ground. And you're like, Hey, we've got to be ready for Saturday night. And this is what I see is probably the biggest problem with amateur racers is they leave their best performances in training and it leaves them flat when we get to race day. Yeah. And we see it over and over. I know you do as well. We see it all the time though. Not good. Yeah. I think that's probably one thing where amateurs, they're like, they've got so many other stresses in their life. They run quite often running a business or got a family or doing 50 yeah. hours a week. And then they're trying to smash out massive volume of training. So they're like, yes. you want to talk about like the allostatic load or their overall overall stress load their buckets like overflowing you're exactly right we refer to it as stress file folders when yeah. you look at work family finance and then when we get into the realm of performance a stress can come from dehydration caloric restriction 
too much volume, too much uh, intensity, too much frequency, too much racing, too much stress associated with the race weekend, getting to and from the races and everything that goes with it. And I always like to uh, describe it as a teeter-totter. You know, on this side of the teeter-totter is all of your stress, whatever that category consists of, as you just said, personal, professional, financial, athletic. Well, the only thing that can counterbalance that on a seesaw is sleep and food. That's it. Yeah. What are the two things that get beat up the most? Sleep and food. Scale is always out of balance. Performance declines. And what we have found, as soon as the performance begins to decline, they pour more and more in the stress category by going harder, going longer, going more frequently when they should be doing the absolute opposite. And it's tough because when you have somebody like yourself, hyper-competitive, very good, it seems counterintuitive to say you're going slower, but you need to rest more. Uh, that just doesn't make sense to somebody who doesn't understand the physiology. And that's where it takes someone like yourself who is educated in it and can articulate it in a way to earn their confidence and then show them slowly those variables and results changing. And then boom, now we're off and running. It's not always easy to do, as you know. Yeah, sometimes you've got to take a, I guess, take a step sideways to keep moving forwards kind of thing. Absolutely. And you bring up a good point. I get very frustrated with the professionals because I'll have a guy is a family man, runs his own business and is a racer. And I'll talk to him at noon and he's already gotten an hour and a half on the, in the weight room and, the, and on the spin bike or the concept two rower has already been at work for three hours, has already eaten breakfast, a snack and a lunch. And my pro guy, it's one o'clock in the afternoon and he hasn't even gotten out of bed yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's where you run into the idea that the amateurs do too much and the pros are, they fall into what I call the complacency category. You know, when they're on their way up, they'll eat right, they'll sleep right, they'll do massage therapy, they'll go to the physio, they'll do everything correctly. Then they get a seven-figure contract and a multi-year deal. And then that complacency settles in, especially if they get a multi-year deal. First year, they just go on cruise control. They're like, yeah, whatever, it doesn't matter. Then they go into, uh-oh, it's time for a contract. So we try to get serious. They end up overtraining, end up getting hurt. And then on the time it comes around for contract, it's too late. You know, they're, they're known as the guy that's always prone to get injured. That drives me out of my mind. Absolutely drives me out of my mind. You know, yeah. you know what you need to do. You know what got you there. But as soon as there's lots of money and a lot of notoriety, they're the hardest ones to get going sometimes. So it's, it's a double-edged sword because you have the amateur – at one pendulum and you have the pros at the other over here you have complacency and over here you have doing too much and we see it every year yeah yeah so that's what i really love about you is that that i guess that philosophy of results i mean sorry not result of health over results firstly so i really want to get into some of that sleep and nutrition stuff with you but what what are some of the markers you are looking for with your athletes to obviously indicate that they, they're handling their training load? The, every single day we have our athletes maintain, uh, it's what I refer to as a, a body analysis. It's really a biofeedback indicator. Some people don't like that big word, so we kind of narrow it down, call it body analysis. What you're looking at is every morning we look at resting heart rate with an empty bladder. We look at hours of sleep. We look at color of urine. We look at body weight before you go to bed. So what we're looking at is when you wake up in the morning and you empty your bladder, if the heart rate's up more than five beats, the athlete does not train that day at all. 
If it's up three or less beats, we just need to know why. If they just did a big day of intervals, let's say they did 10 by 500 meters with one minute rest on their rower, we expect there to show some sign of stress. So that's not a code red alarm. And if I'm doing my job, if I've given them 10 by 500 meters on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday is going to be active recovery anyways. Mm. That's just a given. But after, and I don't want to be complicated to your question, if they do intervals on Tuesday and the heart rate's still elevated by Thursday, that tells me that they didn't absorb what we did. We're not slapping them on the hand, but on Thursday, the body hasn't shown that it's fully recovered. Heart rate is up. Body weight is down. Now, I'm going to get highly technical. Again, you tell me where the boundaries are at with your listeners. What we do is with the new heart rate monitors, you know, they're all going to that infrared where they can read off the wrist, like the Garmin Phoenix 5 or the 4Runners. Yeah. There you go. Yep. (laughs) So what we do now is we look at the sleep quality. We look at how much time is spent in deep sleep, light sleep, and transitional. We look for five to six sleep cycles per night. If we don't get that sleep cycle, we adjust the next day's training schedule accordingly. I refer to it as the tail follows the head. If the, mm-hmm. if the, if the head is going into a mode of stress, then the heart rate's going to come up and show it. And until the body can come into a mode of recovery, the tail never comes down. Not even five years ago, you know, like the variable that you see on your dashboard, analyzing sleep, we, have, we used to use a different watch called the basis sleep watch So the athlete would have to change watches, go to bed with it, get up in the morning, cradle it, upload the data. Well, now with your Garmin dashboard, I can see your sleep. I can see your workouts on the motorcycle. I can see your workouts off the motorcycle. So what we look at is I write your schedule for, I write your schedule every Friday for next week based on the information I got this week. That's the key term. We don't send five-week blocks of workouts to somebody because we, there's a lot of variables that can change in one day, much less five weeks. So what we do is we look at the biofeedback indicators, sleep quality, sleep quantity. We look at resting heart rate, and we look at the fluctuations in the morning heart rate, excuse me, in the morning body weight. We only use the scale to evaluate three variables, inflammation, swelling, and hydration. That's it. The scale does not tell you percentage of body fat. So these, these expensive scales that do electric impedance in your feet, and they tell you that your body fat, those are completely 100% wrong. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you're dehydrated, it says, oh, you got real lean overnight. But if you're overhydrated, they say you're fat. Well, you know, if you adhere to the idea that there's 3,500 calories to a pound of fat, if it says you, your percentage of body fat went up by 2% and you weigh 100 pounds, did you really eat 7,000 excessive calories the night before? And did it really go onto your body as stored body fat? No, 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 no. What we do is we take body calipers and we use tape measures every six weeks, and that's how we measure body fat. But on a daily basis, we measure inflammation, swelling, and hydration with the scale, and you document it every day. So if you've got a listener that's like, oh my gosh, you know, Coach Robbins, that's way too much information. Think about it. Four variables tells me whether or not you're overtrained or not. Mm. Four variables. Heart rate, body weight, hours of sleep, evening weight, and color of urine. Excuse me, five variables. Yeah. And if you ask about the, the color of urine, here's what we're looking for. If your urine is dark yellow, 
sometimes people could say, oh, I'm just dehydrated. You're right, it could be. But if the urine has a real pungent smell to it, when you're cannibalizing muscle tissue for fuel, you will literally, your body will release ammonia. So you'll smell that ammonia in the toilet and I need you to be aware of it. I know it's not fun to stick your head in the toilet. You really don't need to. If, if it stinks bad, it'll come up and get your attention pretty quick. And that's what I want people to understand is when you're asking me, am I getting enough protein? If your urine is dark yellow and it smells like ammonia, no, you're not. <laughs> it's pretty simple. I don't need to do a uric acid test to be able to find out if you're protein or nitrogen positive or negative. I don't know if you're comfortable with like nitrogen evaluation, whether or not you're you know, positive in a protein category or not, but just smell it. The yeah. average guy can tell whether or not his urine stinks or not. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, it, and now with these watches, you can go back and you can look at sleep quality. So you look at what we do when we write your schedule, we look at projected. And then as the week transpires, we look at projected versus actual. Because what ends up happening is if you ask some of the, like if I take you as an elite racer, your mindset is, well, if you want two kilometers on the rower, well, wouldn't four kilometers be twice as good? That's just kind of the competitive mindset, you know? So what we say is I want you to do a 10,000 or a 15,000 meter row session. And then they, you, you look at their dashboard and they did 21,000 meters and you're like, man, you, you just messed up the overall volume for the week. Mm. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on a bunny trail for just a second. What we do with our athletes is we partition their week off on two components. The first component is seat time, and the second component is cross training. And then what we do is we take both of those categories and we divide it into what percentage is aerobic and what percentage is anaerobic with updated heart rate zones. So if you're using old heart rate data, you could be overtraining or undertraining. That's a huge problem. And if you're not monitoring the overall volume per week at what percentage is aerobic and anaerobic, that's how we trip into the category of overtraining. And like we said earlier with Roxon, um, you know, I don't know why he's tired. I don't, all I know is when he's vocal about it and they're willing to put it on the TV, it's got to be a pretty significant issue right now. Yeah, totally. So, yeah, I, I really want to get into that sleep stuff and the and the and the nutrition stuff too. But just sure. on that, the resting heart rate after, so after you empty your bladder in the morning, is that a better, um, I guess, metric than your resting heart rate overnight? Is it? Yes, because as your bladder fills up, it becomes a stress on the system. Yeah. And not to be graphic, but if you can empty your bowels and and urinate. That would be like the best case scenario because the overall, you know, like when you're driving in the car and you know you got to go to the restroom and you're trying to find a place to go, your whole body gets filled with that anxiety. Well, that's what your body is doing at night to the point that it wakes you up sometimes at night. So that's going to artificially skew that overnight number. Some people will argue, no, I'm going to take the lowest heart rate in the evening. That's cool. My thing is just take whatever number you're going to use consistently. If you're using the resting through the night, perfect. I find that the, the numbers are a little bit more accurate in the morning, but I also respect that. And, and this is going back to your original question. We ask our athletes to please get up, empty their bladders, and then go back to bed for two or three minutes and get horizontal. Because yeah. when you're vertical, your heart's got to offset the gravitational pull to bring the venous blood flow back to the heart. That's a, once again going to skew your numbers all over again. Yeah, yeah. So that's what yeah. I would recommend. Makes sense, yeah. 
So let's get into those heart rate zones a little bit. That's something I really did want to talk about. Sure. When you sure. talk about, like, can we, I guess probably just maybe firstly explain those different heart rate zones and why, I guess, people, I know I have myself in the past, I've definitely fallen into the trap of that more is better, harder is better. You spend all this time training in that moderate sort of intensity and you're not hitting either end of the scale. So yes. I guess firstly, just explain to the listeners what those heart rate zones look like and then how important it is that we make sure we're hitting each of them. Absolutely. I love the, the uh, Instagram post that you put up there yesterday where you did zone one to zone five. And I like the way that you denoted where the source of calories are coming from. And I think that, I mean, that illustration that you had on your Instagram account just absolutely screams volumes because when somebody tells me that they want to burn or lose body fat, and then they're in there doing all this anaerobic threshold training before anybody sends me a nasty email or leaves an ugly Instagram message for you, I get it in on paper that if you go into those upper loads, it does create stimulation in the, in the hormonal system. And I get all that. The problem is, is the average individual is already coming in tired, is already coming in dehydrated, is already coming in hormonally depleted. That high intensity training is just not good for them. Totally. Yeah. You want to sell me the physiology of it. I get it. I'm a hundred percent on board, but you've got to kind of back the equation up. Give me a group of people who are healthy enough to take on that level of training. And I want to make, cause that's what I thought was so cool. As you're asking questions about the heart rate zones, I think people need to understand where are your calories coming from to fuel the workout you're going to do. If you understand that you've only got about 60 to 80 minutes of stored glycogen in your liver and your muscles to feed high intensity training, but yet you told me you wanted to lose body fat and then you're frustrated because you're not losing body fat. So you add more volume, more intensity, more frequency, and then you don't get the results you want. So you go harder, longer, more often. Then you go, screw it. I'm just going to cut calories. The file folder we were talking earlier of stress just gets filled up higher and higher and higher and the athlete goes backwards. So what we look at with the five heart rate zones is we look at zone one as being strictly aerobic all the way up to and including zone five, which is lactate threshold and aerobic threshold. I use those somewhat synonymous. Now it was interesting on your graph that you put on Instagram, you kind of drew a line at zone two. You put zone two and three for fat and four and five for, you know, sugar. Yeah. I think glucose, people, yeah. Yeah. What we always say is you can't ever go too easy when you're trying to lose weight. So for somebody that thinks, oh, it's soft to walk to lose weight, no, you're going to burn, you're guaranteed to burn a higher percentage of fat. Now, when it comes to performance on those five zones, what we do is we take, we do max heart rate assessments every six to eight weeks, depending on the race schedule. We take that information and we override the max heart rate number in your watch. Because I want your listeners to understand when you put your age and your height, and your gender, it's just using a basic mathematical logarithm. And, and you know, for the average Joe, it's not bad. I'll tell you in my experience, I've seen that be off probably 30 to 40% of the time. Now for someone like you at an elite level of racing, trying to get the very best out of yourself, that eight to 9% margin of error, that's an difference. entire... That's an entire energy zone. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And for your listeners, what I want them to understand is, and this gets a little convoluted because it's double negatives. You could be training too easy on your hard days and training too hard on your easy days. So plus one and minus one is still a net gain of zero. And this is something that I want your listeners to really pay attention to because they're, they're willing to put in the effort. They're willing to be dedicated to their nutrition and sleeping. And then they go to train and they go, why is it not working? Well, it's because your heart rate zones are out of whack. You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of components to success. You're, you've got to change the way you eat from a quality and quantity standpoint to sleep better. Sleep always precedes, excuse me, food always precedes sleep, always. Sleep and food always precedes exercise. But then if we assume that column A and column B are dialed, when we get into column C, if those heart rate zones are not accurate, here's the key word for the discipline that you're doing. Your heart rate zone on the rower is not the same on the bicycle. The heart rate zone on the bicycle is not the same on the motorcycle. So you've got to adjust. We, we have a spreadsheet, and I'm happy to email it to you and share it with your listeners where all you've got to do is plug in two numbers. You plug in your max heart rate specific to the rower and you plug in your resting heart rate and you hit enter. And we, I have a full-time uh, web and uh, programming department and they create these resources for us in Excel. It's the simplest spreadsheet on, in existence. But you put in two variables and hit enter and it gives you your high and your low number for all five zones for the rower, for the bicycle for the motorcycle, for running, for swimming, for whatever you want to do. Now, when you look at those five zones, if you come back to me and you say, Rob, I'm really struggling on my opening lap speed. I just can't get out of the blocks. We change your warm up to make sure your lactic acid shuffle is moving. And then we make sure that we know where does that LT zone begin for you? Where does your sprint speed begin? Well, you grab that from your race data. Okay, then what we do is when you and I go to the track, we say, okay, Ben, look, today we're here to work on lactate threshold. You're only going to improve that energy system when you get above number XYZ, 165. I'm using a very high, you know, ambiguous number. Yeah, yeah. But if, if I'm trying to get Ben's lactate threshold improved, he needs to A, know that his 165 is an accurate number, and then actually have the data to say, did I get into that energy system? Because if you don't get there, your body doesn't become familiar with it. It never improves. It never gets any better. Now, what I think is most important from a safety standpoint, if I'm trying to work on your high-end sprint speed, I would much rather do that safely on a bicycle or a rower mm. than have you on a bike at fifth gear wide open and get side swap because, you know, you're just, you're getting really mentally tired. Yeah. Anybody who's new to yourself or myself with it comes to physiology, think about it. You've identified what your weakness is off, excuse me, on the motorcycle. If you have accurate heart rate zones for the modality that you're using, you can improve the energy, the specific energy system with no risk whatsoever. I mean, the furthest you're going to fall off a concept two rowers a meter, you know, <laughs> that's, that's the worst you're going to do. So yeah. versus, you know, a high speed get off. And that's what I want people to be excited about is if you have accurate heart rate zones for the modalities that you're using to train, you, you will immediately, immediately see it transferred to the bike. And that's when everyone's like super excited, like, yeah, this program works. It's only working because you're using it correctly. 
That's what I want people to understand. And this is where we said earlier, when you get an ex-pro that declares to be a physiologist, they, they declare that they know it, but if you challenge them on anything, they have no clue. And I'm not, that's not what I want to get on this subject of, but I want people to understand that there is a methodology, there is a science, and there is a process that you have to follow. And when you do it, it, gets, it becomes easy almost. I hate to say that because it's a lot of sweat equity, but yeah. it does become a little bit easier because you're training smart. Exactly, yeah. It's smarter, not harder, that, that old adage, I suppose. Absolutely. So what and how do you determine that max heart rate? Is that just like a max effort on that, I guess, that um, whether it's a rower or a spin bike or mountain bike or whatever it is? Yeah, it's a great question. What we do is on the motorcycle, we, we prefer to use race environment just because yeah. you'll push yourself against your buddies a lot harder than you will by yourself. Yeah. When we do the bicycle, depending on the fitness level of the individual, what we want to do is we want to um, – we want to use a time trial distance that fits their current level of fitness. And then what we want to do is we want to do what we call a graded, we want to do a graded curve. Now, for those of you, for your listeners that don't like math, I apologize. This gets a little bit number geekish, but if you can, if you could think about a rise over run on a graph, somebody who's not in good shape will start the test and it will be very short and it'll go straight up quickly. Yeah. Somebody who's in really good shape, it'll take a while, <clears throat> excuse me, it'll take a while to get the heart rate up. And when it does, it'll be more of a gradual angle before it'll actually go vertical. What we want to do is increase the length of the curve and we want to decrease the steepness of the curve. Now, because I've got an analytics background, I do a lot of number crunching with Excel and macros and all of that. These new dashboards help quite a bit, but they don't give you that minute focus that I think is important to separate good from excellent. So to answer your question, what we do is, uh, I'll take example for the bike. We'll use a 10, uh, in your case, we'll use about a, a nine kilometer distance. And what we do is we hit the halfway point at four and a half kilometers. And what we do is we want it to be a gradual time trial over t uh, nine kilometers. What we look at is the average and the max heart rate for the first four and a half K. And then we look at the average and the max for the final four and a half K, compare the first to the second, measure the standard deviation, take your average versus your max. And there should not be more than a 10 to 12 beat difference between your max and your average to validate that top end number. Yeah. So here's what I want you to think about. You're going to put yourself in, in the pain cave over these nine kilometers. Yeah, yeah. If they do it incorrectly, let's say they go out and they blow themselves up at the 3K mark, well, that doesn't really test the, because at a 10,000 foot view looking down, if the legs give out before we compress the heart rate, we're not really measuring max heart rate. The physical limiter was muscular strength and endurance. Yeah. That's where I said at the beginning of the illustration, it depends on the fitness level of the individual. They may not be able to go 9 or 10K. They might only be able to go 5K total. Mm. So you have to have the confidence to adjust what your testing protocols are. Um, and then as the athlete, and you know, working with athletes the way you do, you get to know their thresholds, their capabilities. You start to figure out if it's more of a mental challenge for them than it is truly physical. Then when you do get into the realm of physical, is it cardiovascularly or is it soft tissue? Did the tissue give out before you press the heart or did mm. they couldn't catch their breath and cardio gave out before you press the muscles 
and you're kind of trying to, I always use railroad tracks. You're trying to get them to always stay in unison. If one gets overdeveloped, this one pays the price and this becomes your limiter. We want them to always just be improving in unison together all the way up. What does that take? Someone like yourself to analyze it. And that's where the athletes, they're like, man, I'm trying to ride and I'm trying to eat. I'm trying to go to school or go to work and keep my family together. Now you want me to crunch all these numbers? <laughs> and that's what we do for a living is we're an analytics company where we can crunch the data quickly. We have historical data. You have benchmarks. And I know for the average person, they're like, oh, this is so geeky. It's so geeky. It's so geeky. But you've got to, the big word I hope your listeners will go away with is no matter what they're doing. It's cross-validating every number. If you go out and you do a bike time trial and you hit 190 on that, how do you know 190 is accurate? How do you know it's not 193? Or how do you know that 190 is what we would consider a numerical anomaly? You've never hit 190 in your life on a bicycle. Now all of a sudden you hit 190? You've got to be, that's why I said earlier, you've got to take your average heart rate compared against the max. And if it's more than 10 to 12 beats, one or the other is wrong. And, yeah. and yourself being a physiologist, it's our job to help them identify what happened. How do you do that? You look at their heart rate every minute over the course of a 9K time trial. On the rower, what we do is we do five by 500 with one minute rest. And we look at the average and the max heart rate. And I can say this, and I hope your listeners will understand Think about if you jumped on a, um, a street bike, a, moto, uh, a super or a um, MotoGP bike, street bike, yeah. and you grab a handful of throttle and you blip the throttle. It'll go to 15,000 RPMs and come right back down. So what we want to do when we're dealing with performance is we look at a 500 meter block. We look at the average and the max. Now, this is where it gets technical. At the end of that 500 meter block, let's say his heart rate's 185. He only gets one minute rest. How fast and how far did his heart rate drop? That's a sign of cardiovascular fitness. Yeah. And what we do is we compare the, the percentage of drop from interval one to two to interval two to three, three to four, four to five. So we look at the average and max per block. We look at how quickly it drops numerically. Did it drop 21 beats and then it only dropped 15 beats and only dropped 13? Well, that's another variable of evaluation. Remember, it's about cross-validating. We don't just take his max heart rate on one block and go, oh, that's mm. the gospel. Now, if you see a big fall-off, for example, let's say that you can row 500 meters in, let's say, a minute and 45 seconds, but your fifth one is a 217, wow, that tells me a lot. But is it a muscular strength? Is it a muscular endurance? Or is it a lactate tolerance? This is where your rest interval comes in to help you understand and validate he may be able to tolerate a lot of it. He's not able to recover. So he can lay down one lap real fast. The lactic acid accumulates, and then he gets frustrated. He goes, why do I throw anchor and go backwards? I'm training with Ben. I'm in great shape. I'm really lean. Well, because that energy system of lactate accumulation hasn't been enhanced, which goes back to your question. If the heart rate zones aren't accurate, you may not be improving that energy system, and it will constantly be your weakest link in your system. And that's what we want people to understand. Cross-validate the numbers. Don't just take them for gospel. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know? So, and that, so anaerobic, that anaerobic tolerance, that, it's also that recovery has got a lot to do with your aerobic base, hasn't it? 
to actually recover from those those high intensity to like get rid of that waste? There's actually two components. It's the aerobic capacity. Think about the cardiac output and the millimoles of blood that gets pumped out of the aorta of the heart. As the arteries distribute that oxygenated blood, the stronger your heart gets, i.e. cardiovascular fitness, the better off you are. The piece that most people kind of walk around that they don't pay attention to is the bedding of capillaries in the muscle tissue. This is where that season we talked about earlier about preseason. When you go out and you do low intensity exercising, what happens is the capillary beds literally permeate the muscle tissue like the roots of a tree. Those are the channels that get oxygen in and lactic acid out when you go from preseason to pre-competitive to competitive. When you've built that aerobic base and capillary bed, now you get to capitalize on it. But the problem is there's a mindset that the only way to get fast is to go fast all the time. And it's the absolute contrary to the truth. Yeah. Now, for somebody that's listening to your podcast, there might be one or two people that will adhere to it. They'll bite into it and they'll go straight to the stratosphere. Everybody else will roll their eyes and tell you that we don't know what we're talking about. And as humbly as I can say this, we have the most amateur national championships of any coaching company in the world. We have four AMA number one plates at a professional level. I think we know what we're talking about, but there still will be somebody who thinks that, no, the only way to train fast is to go fast. And the only way to increase lactate tolerance is to go guts to the wall. Okay, just keep doing what you're doing and wonder why you don't get any better. I'm not trying to sound cocky at all. It's just a mindset I don't understand. And just yeah, well, think about like it. you say, no, you go, sorry. You, you've got the, you've got the, like you say, you've got the results there. And obviously the, the years of experience and all that data to, to back up exactly what you're saying. Well, that's what I always say is whether you like me or you don't like me or you agree with, you don't agree, numbers don't lie. You know, and, and what I love about it is the heart rate monitors that we look at, you're the one wearing the heart rate monitor and you sync the watch. I can't, I can't fabricate the numbers at all. Yeah. I just have to work with the data that you've captured for us. And that's the part that people start to go, oh, wow, wait a second. Okay, this is my information. You know, when you fill out your time trial results, when you start and stop your watch, you're either getting faster at a lower heart rate or you're not. And if you're not, we need to know why. You know, yeah. and that's, that's the part that I find so interesting through all of it is it's the, the numbers and the quantification of it. Yes, I will admit there's a lot of people that want to spin and fabricate the truth, you know, like, you know, whether it's VO2 max numbers or whatever. And I get that. And, and whenever people get jaded that way, I totally understand why they're, they're, they've got a disdain taste in their mouth. But what I always say is, Come to me with an intelligent conversation of why you question what I'm saying. You know, bring me some data and let me help you understand it. It's your data, but let me help you understand it. And that's where it's always interesting because people are like, well, you know, you got to do anaerobic threshold training. If you're rested, if you're well-fed, if you're well-focused, you've got good balance in your life. I would agree there's a time and a place for it. But I won't ask you to submit your body to additional stress that overruns your coping mechanism, which is known as your parasympathetic system, your fight or flight. If yep. that system and the adrenals are already getting overworked, why would I come in and dump more stress on a system that's already fatigued? It's like your hour meter on your bike having 300 hours and you go, hey, the bike's fresh. It's got new graphics. It looks good. Yeah. But the internals are all beat up, you know? Yeah. It's, it's crazy mindset. 
<laughs> so on that, with the, the heart rate and the, the energy systems, not necessarily an energy system, but the fat glucose, had, do you do anything there like, or have you been, I guess, exploring any options with breath control and how that affects? Because I've been doing a fair bit of reading and research lately on the nose breathing stuff and how that can greatly affect whether you are fat burning. Obviously, when we're on the bike, we're at that really high heart rate anyway. Yeah. So in those cases, we're, we're just burning glucose anyway. But yep. but when we're training, like if we can um, maximize our fat burning, then that's going to be a good thing as an athlete. You're 100% correct. And, and I haven't gone as deep with it as you have. Um, what I look at from a breathing standpoint is verifying if the athlete's breathing superficially through his chest or if he's using what's called the diaphragmic muscle down below the rib cage. What I look at is maximizing the oxygen penetration rate in the blood. And what we do is we have our athletes lay down at night and have them breathe through a straw to get them to feel what that diaphragmic muscle feels like. I do not recommend that they do it driving a car, sitting in their office because you could hyperventilate and pass out. Yeah. So it's a very serious thing. I don't mind sharing it with your listeners because I'm assuming they're all accountable and responsible. But a straw can definitely help you learn how to diaphragmically breathe. What you're studying, in my opinion, is top-notch, really good info. But I would be completely lying to you if I told you that I put much into it, mainly because I, I struggle just to get people to breathe properly. <laughs> and if I could just get them to focus on breathing properly – that in itself is, is a good advancement right there. Now, if I'm dealing with somebody that's into yoga, meditation, and that's a large part of their program, they really get it and they invest in it. But in the performance world, I find it very difficult, unfortunately. Their attention span just isn't there long enough to go into that much depth. But I think for yourself and where you're going, you're spot on, 100%. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I've been, I guess it's a thing I geek out on a bit is that the breath work stuff yeah. so i've been enjoying that yep. lately um great so with the the heart rate zones and that aerobic base um well i guess the the different volumes intensities how do you differ that between a gncc racer and a motocross racer like obviously the the motocross racer has the benefit of being able to just train for a 30 minute moto whereas over here in Australia, at least, probably a bit different in the States, but our off-road series has sprints, it has GNCC-style three hours, and it also has the traditional enduro, which could be seven, eight, nine hours long. So yeah. as an off-road rider, you've got to train for those, like you've got to be a really, really high-quality endurance athlete as well. So Absolutely. How, yeah, how do the, you, the how I... you address that? The, the first thing I always do is I want all of your listeners to grab a piece of paper and I want them to draw an arrow straight up and then right next to it, draw an arrow straight down. And what I want them to look at is the arrow to the left represents intensity and the arrow on the right represents duration. So if the intensity is going up, you have to bring the duration down and then vice versa. They're going to bring the, in, the duration you know, if you're going to go the opposite direction, you're going to bring the duration down, you can take intensity up. If you're going to take the duration up, you have to bring intensity down. Now, when it comes to training, this is what I really appreciate the depth of questions that you're asking, because it gives your listeners a true framework of what's behind a, a physiological program. 
we start with what the racer is training for based on that calendar we were talking about. So we take a 12 month calendar, we put the events that are on the calendar, we prioritize them A, B, and C. Some races we train up to and right through them and others were in a major peak mode. We let that athlete tell us what races are most important. And then what we do is we look at the characteristics of that race. As you said, it could be nine hours, it could be three hours, it could be sprints. And what we try to do is, and you can't always do it because there's a lot of overlap because you, you know, you may have a race that's four weeks apart and then maybe three months apart and then one week apart. So you have to look at the bigger picture and you kind of partition it off so that the rider is ready for the longest race. Now, in a perfect scenario, that nine-hour race would be at the end of Q3 or Q4, so you could gradually build up to the necessary volume. Unfortunately, that doesn't always happen. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go very technical here because it's, your question is really important because it eliminates a lot of people's frustrations. In an ideal world, if our peak race was going to be in Q3 or 4, we would gradually build up over an eight- to nine-month period to be ready for a nine-hour race. Along the way, we would be building the energy systems to do a shorter three-hour race and be able to still do sprint races. We would build those energy systems along the way, getting ready for the biggest race of the year. But what if that race is in June, middle of the yeah. season? Yeah. All right. So what you have to do is this is 2020. What we want to do is peak in June of 2020. You got to go back to pre-competitive and competitive and excuse me, pre-competitive in preseason, and maybe you start your training season nine months ahead of that. So October, November, December is when you would do your preseason to be peaking in January, or excuse me, in June. Now, again, if you don't know periodization and the buildup models and macros and mesos and all these different cycles, that's where people are like, I'm confused, I'm lost. But I want to answer your question specifically. I always have the athlete what is your biggest priority race of the year? What's the characteristics of it? And then we adhere to that idea that if the volume is up, we bring the intensity down and we train the energy systems. We train the nutrition and the hydration to the specificity of the highest intensity we can maintain for the distance we want to race. That's what I want people to take away. If I'm training a marathoner, the race doesn't begin until we get to the 20 mile mark of a 26.2 mile race. Yeah. If you're in a nine hour race, the race doesn't begin until you get to eight hours. If you're in a three hour race, it doesn't begin until you get to two hours. If you're in a one hour race, you just got to take it 15 minutes at a time. But what we do is if the race distance is coming down, we take the intensity gradually up and up and up. We fragment and negative split it. So the last 15 minutes of an hour, they're able to haul the mail, but you've got to do everything beforehand to be setting the stage for you to be able to go. It's like in the Tour de France. Everybody sets the stage for that final sprint. That's exactly what we do, whether it's a one hour or let me back up. Whether it's an eight-minute sprint, amateur motocross, whether it's a 30-minute outdoor national, whether it's an hour-and-a-half GNCC, three-hour GNCC, air scramble, sprint, or a nine-hour. Like we did some work with Ryan Sykes, you know, getting ready for ISDE, getting ready for all the things that he's doing this year. It's you know, it's a, it's a bigger process. And that's yeah. why Ryan's able to do it is because he, he laid his year out and said, okay, here's going to be my big milestones. He may go do some pickup races here, but he really only wants to win Daytona. He wants to win a certain amount throughout the season. There you go. So I hope I explained that. Okay. 
inverse relationship between volume and intensity, prioritize the races, drop them into a calendar, and make sure that you have competitive, pre-competitive, and pre-season has to precede everything that you're doing. That's why it's important to know where you want to be a year from now always. And that's very difficult when people are like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go do this huge race in three months, and they have no fitness foundation to do that. And then they get frustrated and go, oh, my gosh, why did I do that? You know, that's where it becomes. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was going to say. I love that. I love how you've described that because I think that's so many times or I have people come to me and they've got 12 weeks before this race. And it's like you say, it's 12 weeks is only the beginning. It's, it's scratching the surface. And even my, like I, I do my, my clients pay me on 12 week blocks, but Uh it's 12 weeks. It's just, it is, it's, it's so small a part of the process. Um, Like you say, like what, yeah, that, especially with that aerobic base and strength, et cetera, like that's, it's six months, it's 12 months. It's, it's, it's a lot of work. That's it. And, and what we, we, we will even go so far is let's say somebody wants to, uh, let's say peak in August at Loretta's. If they come to us any later than January, February, we won't take them on as a client. Now we'll take them on as a client with a caveat that they want to win Loretta's two years from now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's awesome. But that obviously doesn't make us very popular because we're like, yeah, but we need to win this year. And I'm like, well, that's why you should have called us because I'll, I'll be very, very transparent to your listeners. We always want to, we start at least eight months ahead of the biggest race of the year. Because if you do the math, now granted, you could have one season be 12 weeks long, one be 16 weeks long, and one be eight. I mean, the, the, the magical number isn't a specific. It's what do you want to accomplish in a 12-month period? prioritize it as we just discussed but when you when you think about it the body rejuvenates itself completely every six months so the body we're sitting with today is a byproduct of what we've eaten what we've submitted to over the last six months so if i need to be ready in august you can't be calling me in june or july going yep i want to be ready for and and here in the states it's tough because these kids have these six and eight minute sprints literally from january all the way through June and then the qualifiers are done and they have six weeks to turn around and be ready for two, three 20 minute motos over five days and two classes. That is a completely different energy system altogether. So when I talk to agents that represent hair cuttery and home Depot and target and all these big, big men, big, large corporations, they get very irritated because they're like, wait, this guy was killing it all year long. And then we go to the nationals and he's a tank. Well, it's because the guy's been doing nothing but short sprint stuff. Because again, the only way to go fast is to sprint. So they've been doing that for nine months. And they think in a six week period, you can build this enormous aerobic base to go three twenties over five days in two classes. And then they're lucky to break into the top 10 and they go, what happened? And I, and and I'm going to sound a little bit of a smart aleck when I say this, if I'm dealing with a guy like we just picked up a hand maker at uh, right after many O's, he rides for factory Kawasaki. Um, he's got a pro deal um, to go all the way through into Mitch's rig. He broke his collarbone, uh, dislocated and fractured his, uh, his uh, entire shoulder at many O's. My point being is yes, he'd love to win Loretta's. I mean, that's, that's part of the game plan, 
but we're really not even worried about Loretta's because the goal is, is after Loretta's, he goes right into the outdoor nationals. I myself would be doing him a disservice to get him ready for two 20 minute motos when mm. two weeks after he's done with Loretta he's got to go two thirties plus two. Yeah. That's, that's the short sightedness that people look at. They're like, we just have to do this week. No, that's not how the physiological body builds and develops. You don't see the tour de France teams doing speed work in October, November, and December. They're sitting on their bikes for six and eight hours, yeah. burning fat, laying capillary beds, building an aerobic engine, and spending a lot of time in the gym. But yet it's good enough for the Tour de France, but it's not good enough for our sport. Yeah. And it's just, it's a mindset I can't comprehend. Yeah, yeah, totally. So that, that's probably a good segue, and I love you mentioned that, how our body in six, six months, or what our body is now six months ago, is essentially as, as what has created our body in terms of, ligaments tendons or they're all they're rejuvenating even on a cellular level like i think they say 95 percent of cells are recreated every 12 months so that's right can you go a little bit more into that and we can get into the nutrition stuff and why obviously quality sure i want to get into the quality and also the quantity too um yes i think that's another area where um motocrosses don't realize how much they're actually freaking burning um, so oh, I want to yeah. get into that too, but can we uh, get started on that side of things? Yeah, absolutely. I'm ready to jump in that hundred percent. You know, like you said, the, the most important part is realizing that life begins at a cellular level. And every time your heel touches the ground, you break down those red blood cells and that body has got to rejuvenate. Well, this is why I'm such a big stickler on sleep quality, because what people don't realize is I need your body to get to sleep quickly. And I needed to get into REM pattern three, get into that deep sleep because in REM pattern three, that's where your body rejuvenates itself in the light sleep REM pattern one. That's where your brain gets rejuvenated. And then the transitional, nothing good physiologically happens. So those yeah. sleep charts are really, really beneficial because when you're in deep sleep, your body releases human growth hormone. That's what makes you lean naturally. Yep. And it also increases your testosterone level, which increases the red blood cell count. Red blood cell carries hemoglobin, and hemoglobin is a precursor to carrying oxygen. Yep. So if you want to increase your oxygen ability, sleep more. But the key is, is you got to eat better to improve your sleep quality so that you get the depth of sleep and the breadth of sleep so that you wake up leaner and fitter than you were before you went to bed. Unfortunately, as we become adults, uh, what ends up happening is people eat less, they sleep less, and they wonder why their fitness starts to go down the tubes. It's because yeah, we yeah. work 20, 21 hours a day and think we can live on four hours of sleep. doesn't work. Yeah, yeah for sure. I think that's uh, it's something I see so many of these entrepreneurs these days. I think maybe yep. athletes mix themselves up, these guys that preach that they sleep can, or, or they survive on four or five hours sleep if you're an athlete, like you've got to be getting a hell of a lot more than that to support that. I, you know, obviously a professional has a bigger luxury, but I, I, I require a minimum of eight at night, preferably nine and a minimum of a two hour nap five days a week. Yeah. So you, know, you add those two together. And the reason why I'm such a big advocate for the nap is as soon as you fall asleep in that first, 15 to 30 minutes. There's a lot of arguments. It's 20 minutes. It's 19 minutes. It's 20, I don't care. The bottom line is, is 
you get that huge dose of HGH and testosterone when you first fall asleep. So when you, when you use your watch, like you were saying earlier, you can literally see how quickly you fall asleep, how deep you get to sleep, and then how long you're able to stay there. Well, for me, this is, again, the analytic side of our business. I look at what, you've, what your sleep patterns have been over a seven-day period. I look at that seven days over six weeks. And then when we take your body composition, you can see a direct correlation. The more deep sleep, the leaner the person becomes naturally. Now, there's an assumption. You're keeping training relatively constant because you're in a training cycle. You're not all over the place with volume and intensity. And you know what they're eating is relatively consistent. The body composition speaks for itself. So mm. when I'm dealing with the confidence of an athlete and they say to me, well, I'm just going to be blunt. I think winning a first championship is not hard. If they're willing to listen and trust the process, winning a championship is not hard. The difficult part is the second championship. And when somebody doesn't have detailed notes on what they did to win it the first time, their concern is, oh my gosh, how do I do this again? Yeah. Well, just simply what you just did. But if you don't have a process in the system, they go, uh-oh, now I'm in panic mode because I don't know how I can do this two seasons in a row. <laughs> Pressure starts to sneak in. They start to worry about the fear of failure instead of the pleasure of success. Now you've worked in a reactionary mode versus a proactive mode. The wheels come off the bus quickly. This is why you see second year deals usually don't work. Yeah. Because if they won the championship the first year, the concern is, well, how am I going to do it again? And if they haven't been under a program or a process or a system, they go into a spray and pray format. I hate to say it, but that's what you saw happen with Justin Barsha. Everybody yeah. started giving him so many different opinions that what worked just went completely soft. You heard Webb say that as soon as he went to KTM. Structure got propped back into, into place. Everything was under focus. Everything was, you know, back in line. Trust yeah. the process. Trust the system. Go. Now, you know, it, whether it's Swanapool over at Star or whether it's Alden at KTM or whether, you know, it's XYZ Club or facility, it doesn't really matter. It's about understanding what you did worked for you and work in those parameters. I can take five people, give them the same five protocols and get five different results. It's just human nature. Yeah. But when you go back to what you were saying earlier, when you look at the blood, you look at the tendons and you look at the ligaments, you have to look at the importance of sleep and understand that sleep is always preceded by food. And that's the part that people screw up all the time. Like you said, you know, you mentioned earlier about how many calories people are burning. Um, if your listeners would grab a piece of paper and write this down. Now, unfortunately, I haven't gotten good at converting kilos yet. I'm trying, I know that a pound is about 2.2. No, a kilo is 2.2 pounds. So yeah, your listeners are going to have to, all right, your, your listeners are going to kind of have to do the math backwards. If, if I take somebody that weighs 180 pounds, now, just before I go any further, I, I was on the Olympic development team for the sport of triathlon in Colorado Springs. So this is not my opinion. This came from Colorado Olympic Training Center. What they say as a general rule of thumb is take your body weight in pounds, add a zero behind it. So if I weigh 180 pounds and I add a zero, I need at least 1,800 calories just to sustain life. Oh, Totally. And, that, and that's, okay. it's important to mention that's if you laid in bed all day. That's right. That's just a sustained life. <laughs> yeah. That's just a sustained life. Yeah. Now, as a general rule of thumb, what I say is double that number. And yeah. that's what your listeners need to be eating per day. 
Yeah. Now, before they roll their eyes and go, that's ridiculous, I'm going to get fat. You're not going to get fat when you eat fruits, vegetables, and lean protein every two hours. It's just mathematically not possible. There's not enough caloric density for you to get fat eating those types of foods. Yeah. But what you said earlier, I thought was profound. If you look at this little dinky watch that's on your wrist mm. and you download it into your dashboard, it tells you approximately how many calories you burn during yeah. that 30 minute, 20 minute, 15 minute moto. You add all those up, you, you just burn another 21, 2200 calories. Yeah, exactly. So if you take your body weight, add a zero and double it in pounds, and again, I'll get better at converting it to kilos, but the idea there is do the math. So, you know, when you look at it that way, it's like, okay, remember what we said earlier about the categories of stress? Well, caloric, chronic caloric deficiency will drive the stress up in the body. Stress drives up a hormone called cortisol. Cortisol is a fat magnet. So people are like on a calorically restricted diet and they're getting fat. You yeah. go, how does that happen? Because nobody wants to tell you the truth behind the way hormones work. Yeah. There's your frustration. Yeah. So yeah. that's where nutrition becomes so important, obviously. So, yeah, how important is it that people do their best to bridge that gap? I, I think it's the most important thing you can do. Yeah. You know, I, I even tell my, <clears throat> pardon me, I even tell my clients, if you're tight on time, I'd much rather you give up an hour and go to the grocery store and go home and start grilling then try to squeeze an hour work it out somewhere. Yeah. Because, you know, I always, I always like to draw a parallel. The food that you put in your body is like the race gas in your bike. Mm. The, the fluid and hydration, attention to detail is like your radiator. And then the oils and the fats and the protein, that's like the lubricant in your motor. We all would agree that if one of those three systems goes sideways, the whole system shuts down. But yet we think that we don't need to pay attention to hydration and nutrition and sleep. But yet those three things work together as one cohesive unit. Yeah. You know, and, and you see it predominantly when conditions go bad at a race, it's hot or it starts to rain. The person that's mentally fresh, well-rested, well-fed, he's very resilient to ugly situations and impromptu situations. Somebody who's always on that ragged edge, the slightest thing goes south and they're throwing their goggles and they're cussing and they're throwing a hissy fit. You know, it's like, yeah. what happened? You know, he's like, I always love it. I have, I have two little guys and a little girl and I say little, they're 14 to 19 now, but when they were little, if they were cranky, you'd feed them and put them to bed. Yeah. But yet we become adults and all of a sudden it's a new criteria. And I'm like, really, when did that line get crossed? It's the exact same thing. It and is, that's yeah. why I always like, I like to use that illustration when we're talking about trying to improve sleep quality so that your body releases HGH and testosterone. That's why food precedes it. If a child is just nursed off of his mother, that child is so full of cholesterol, which is high quality fat, a, a, a train could go by and the child will sleep right through it because he's at such a deep level of sleep. But then we become adults and we become fat phobic and go, well, I'm going to get fat if I eat fat before I go to bed. No, you're not. You're going to satisfy appetite and you're going to sleep like a baby, no pun intended. And what did we say earlier? If you sleep deeply, your body releases HGH is what makes you leaner. Well, that, that's what mainstream media doesn't want to tell you. They say fat's bad for you. Don't go to bed with a full stomach. You're going to turn it to body fat. That's total bullshit. 
Yeah. Complete. Uh, I, that was, I was hoping we could debunk that fat myth because it is it's it's huge in Australia as well the whole low fat craze. But I think it's it's making yep. progress now. But especially even maybe just mention how important fats are, especially as an athlete for adrenal health, hormone production, all those types of things. Like it is a crucial macro, that's for sure. Oh my goodness, it's it's so adulterated right now. It's not even funny. I want your listeners to think about a funnel. And that funnel is your adrenal system. We also, in the physiology world, we call it your parasympathetic. When you almost get in a car wreck and you get that flushed feeling, that's cortisol being jumped into your body. So think about that as the fight or flight that we always hear so much about. Think about a funnel. We expect the funnel, which is our adrenals, at the bottom to excrete the necessary hormones to cope with stress. That's all the adrenal system is designed to do. It's to cope with stress. So at the bottom of the funnel, you're expecting it to excrete a hormone, but it doesn't have the necessary ingredients coming in the top. That's where you get adrenal fatigue. Yeah. The adrenals in the middle of the process is getting overworked. It's trying to excrete something it doesn't have, and it's not getting enough nutrients to build more of it. So the system literally becomes a dry sponge. So when you think about high-quality fats, MCTs, medium-chain triglycerides, avocados, coconut, raw nuts, extra virgin olive oil, you know, that kind of stuff, your body either uses that fat or it loses that fat. When you get into the junk fats like saturated and all that other garbage, sure, you don't want to eat that, but you shouldn't eat that anyways. Yeah. We're talking about the importance before sleep. When you recognize that all of your organs are encapsulated in fat, so when it jars around when you're riding your motorcycle, that's the support system that protects those when you take an impact to the ground fat protects you here's the one that people don't think much about if you remember back when you were studying nerves and biology 101 the two nerves come together like this and you have that little snap that's in the middle of that it's literally an electric current well if you study nerves nerves are covered in adipose tissue yeah so when someone goes on a low fat no fat diet they literally strip the fat and you get what's called a raw nerve syndrome when the, when, the, when the nerve is exposed, it literally short circuits because it needs to, con- think about your spark plug, you know how it kind of gaps in between that gap? Well, that's what it's supposed to do. Mm. It's supposed to fire in between there. So when someone goes on a low fat, no fat, they struggle with anxiety, they struggle with nervousness, and they struggle going to sleep. So what do they do? They get a doctor's medication for sleep. They get, a, they, get a, they get an anxiety medicine. And by all means, I am not making fun of anybody who's on those prescriptions. I'm not. I'm answering your question about when you take fat out of a diet, becoming anxi- full of anxiety and nervous, what does that do for an elite racer when he or she is sitting on the starting line and literally she's short-circuiting in between all these nerves that are supposed yeah. to be firing, you know? And that's what I want people to understand. Your hormones are fed by fat. Your organs are protected by fat. Your nerve endings, they communicate through fat. Fat is a huge conductor in the body. And that's why I think it's a very dangerous place for people to be where they're like, I have to be on a low fat diet. Really? Why? Oh, my doctor said so. And I'm not, you know, that came across the wrong way. I'm not saying I'm smarter than a doctor, but just ask the doctor why. And usually they'll say, well, because your cholesterol is high. Well, your body's pretty amazing. If it needs more cholesterol, it'll excrete more of it. 
if it gets yeah. too much from outside, it excretes less of it. Most highly high cholesterol issues are associated with your body's inability to process simple sugars and starches, which yeah. is its own dilemma in itself. Yeah. You know? So when we have somebody that comes or presents themselves to our facilities and they say, I have high cholesterol, and we put them on what we call a, a no sugar, no starch, nothing white goes in their mouth, voila, their cholesterol level goes through their floor. Yeah. Well, we didn't change the, the, the amount of fat. If anything, we bumped up the fat, we bumped up the eggs, supposedly the sources of cholesterol, but yet their cholesterol went down because you got rid of sugars and white starches. But yep. again, you can't, that's not very sexy. You can't put that on the front <laughs> of a box. You can't put that, you know, on a, on a talk show and be popular about it. You got to create drama and fear that everybody's going to die by Friday if they keep eating fat. Yeah. Yeah. But isn't well, it interesting? We have all these, we have all these health issues, but we keep oh, going down that path. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I had a chuckle about that the other day in our supermarket. I saw that a breakfast cereal that has helps lower cholesterol was the big stamp on the front of it. I just laughed yep. to myself. <laughs> Doesn't, well, and, and take that. And, and that that's the hard, I guess that's the hard thing is for most people that don't have an understanding of the body and like, I guess it's processes. They read that and think, okay, I'm going to eat a box of cereal. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's interesting because what they're going to sell it as is a high fiber, a source of high fiber. But if you look at all the processed sugars and starches and artificial ingredients in that box of cereal, if you yeah. want fiber, just eat a high-quality, multicolored salad, and that roughage going through your large intestine is going to go through there and get rid of the things that you're talking about. It does yeah. it without all the other starches and sugars and artificial ingredients. Again, it goes back to power of marketing. You know, you brought up a pretty good – you bring up – a kind of a, um, a point that I love to always bring up when, when you do it in your context. And then in the States here, they got into this big mantra that everything was cholesterol free. Mm. You have to remember that cholesterol only comes from animal products. Well, when you put it on the cover of a oatmeal that it's cholesterol free, it never had cholesterol to begin with. <laughs> so they, they get on this, well, everything's anti-cholesterol. So now cholesterol free Unless that box of cereal is made out of lard, I don't know where you thought cholesterol was ever going to come from cereal to begin with. Yeah. It just goes to show you how stupid it is. But, you know, marketing is funny that way. They can sing whatever song they want. It is, but that, that's like I kind of feel for people too. Like the, the mainstream, like I say, people that don't, I guess, have an understanding, they, that's where, how they get their nutritional information quite often is, is the ads on tally, is the, the marketing. So they're getting quite often, not quite often, like all the time, they're just getting misled in so many yep. ways, which is unfortunate. Well, what I always like to say is when you look at these weight loss companies, and I'm not going to name them by names, but you know, the big ones that advertise spend millions of dollars a year, they feed in the lack of knowledge in the fear factor. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm going to go on a very technical component. Hopefully your listeners will write this down. When you eat a fruit or a vegetable, it's considered a complex carbohydrate. When your body converts that to stored sugar, it's now converted to glycogen. So anybody who's taking notes, a fruit, a vegetable, if you draw an arrow or an integer line, becomes glycogen. Glycogen is stored in the liver and the muscles. The liver feeds the brain. The muscles feed activity. I want your listeners to understand that. 
in that chemical conversion from a, a complex carbohydrate into stored glycogen, the body will retain 2.8 ounces of water as part of that conversion of glycogen. Yeah. So what you've done is you've prehydrated the body. You and I get that. Well, if you're a, if you're a bar, a box, or a drink, or you're a quote-unquote eating system, and you want to guarantee that somebody's going to lose 10 pounds, not fat, 10 pounds, or in your case, five kilos. Well, isn't it interesting where they'll guarantee five kilo loss, but they don't tell you what that's all about. That's just called dehydration. So think about it. If you and I know that fruits and vegetables naturally retain water, that's what makes us stay hydrated as athletes and human beings, which is good, which is very good. I can put a scare tactic in you and put a false promise that you'll lose 10 pounds the first week if you'll use our system. But what they don't tell you is if you retain water by eating fruits and vegetables, if we put the fear in you that vegetables and fruit have sugar in them, so you want to avoid that, well, boom, immediately I'm going to be able to get 10 pounds off of you because if you don't eat what causes you to retain water, it's a guaranteed weight loss. Notice I said weight loss, not fat loss. And, and that's what really aggravates me is they feed on the, the little semantical games of, oh, well, you're going to lose 10 pounds. You're going to lose five kilos. That's all anybody hears. Instead of going, wait a second, what am I losing, water or body fat or muscle? Because I thought you told me you wanted to lose fat, not muscle or water. Because I can put you in a parking lot and dehydrate you. That doesn't mean that you're any healthier. You're just yeah. dehydrated. You know, but again, we're trying to, the power of trying to sell a system is what really gets people. And when they make these promises guaranteed to lose, but without explaining to them how they're kind of bait and switching them, that's where I think it's immoral for sure. But they're, they're selling hundreds of hundreds of millions of dollars of these boxes, cans Mm -hmm. and and systems, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It is. It is crazy. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and, and that's the problem. There's so much money in it. It's such a big, um, it's yeah, it's a tough one, but all we, all we can try and do is just educate people, right? If you can, that's exactly give, it. Give, that's give it. them the knowledge. Cause it's like you say, it's not super difficult. If you stick to, if you think about natural whole foods, it's reasonably easy. You can't go too far wrong. If you stick into those like 80, right. 90, 80, 90% of the time. Well, we say it here all the time, walk in your grocery store, shop the perimeter of the store and get out because anything that's sitting in a box, a can or a bag has some level of preservatives, starches, and usually some form of carbohydrates. And they're usually processed. Mm. Um, Do I live in a glass house? No, I I eat potato chips like anybody else does at the right time. I just, it's not a staple for me, but you know, after a hundred kilometer ride, I'm going to drink a straight Coke and have some Cape Cod potato chips. You know, I want some salt and sugar. I, I don't, it's not a staple for me, but it, it's in our house. You know what I mean? You know, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You, you've got to have your sometimes foods and your, um, your everyday foods, right? It's, it's all about striking balance. And even if I've got somebody who has a tendency to want to eat junk food, teach them how to better their junk food. You know, if if they insist on they have to go to McDonald's once a day, just take the buns off the top and the bottom. At least it's it's half as good. You know, you got rid of the white starches. I mean, at least you're moving somewhere. Yeah, that's why we don't ever go to complete absolutes. No, that's right. 
that you just slowly wean yourself off of it. But like you say, it's about changing the perspective about not punishing yourself. It's about moving yourself towards the desirable goal in a proactive manner versus I'm doing it out of guilt and punishment. I'm going to punish myself with exercise because of the guilt of what I have or haven't done, what I've eaten or what I haven't eaten. Well, that's, that's why people don't stay with it. And then when they do exercise, they make it so painful and so miserable that you have pain and guilt over here and a lot of pain and misery over here. They're like, nope, I'm done. Yeah. I'm done. Stay nice and comfortable in the middle. Yep. Or <laughs> I'm just destined to be fat my whole life because the trainer keeps calling me a fat pig and I'm not dedicated and I'm not disciplined. And then you start the little intimidating factors that make people trainers and then it goes right to the side of the track in the form of a riding coach. And that's when I'm like, all right, these kids deserve something better. Yeah. They really sure. do. You know, that's why I love what you're doing. I love your message. I love your platform. And that's, you know, that's what I love about the chance to be, to be on the show with you. Yeah. Thank you. So one, one more question I had on like nutrition protein, yeah. like, cause I find that's another area where people are lacking as well. Most of my clients when they come to me are not eating enough protein. And you kind of touched on it back at the start, especially as an athlete. If you're protein deficient, then you are not necessarily wasting a lot of your time, but you're giving away a lot of the, those gains that you're training so hard for. You're exactly right. Um, you know, if you look at what drives quality sleep, you have to satisfy appetite. I want all of your listeners, if they get nothing out of today's show, they need to understand that to improve your quality of sleep, you must satisfy hunger very first. The only two macronutrients that will do that are protein and fat. So we have all of our athletes eat a high quality snack, a smoothie, something before they go to bed. Why? Because we want to satisfy hunger first. What people don't realize is when you increase your fat and your protein intake, you're going to sleep better. You're going to recover and become stronger. That's number one. Protein normally gets associated with the rebuilding of torn down muscle. We get that. Mm -hmm. What people don't understand is how protein fuels the immune system. So like you're saying, if somebody's coming to you and they're chronically depleted in protein or protein deficient, they probably have sores on their mouth. They have ulcers. They get sick all the time. Um, they just get a lot of nagging type of allergies. Everything that goes into that component of, you know, a suppressed immune system. Yeah, yeah, for sure. When you look at breaking down a muscle, the only thing that's going to rejuvenate that tissue is sleep being fed with amino acids that you get from protein. They get stronger and they grow. So when you look at just those three components alone, and, and I like what you said, you know, most people are afraid that they're eating too much protein. And I've been doing this for 34 plus years now. I've never, ever, ever been able to have somebody come to me and tell me that their lower back hurts because their kidneys are being overworked because of excessive protein intake. Yeah. You know, and, and, and to me, I always like to use that as a litmus test because that's kind of the mainstream example. You know, if your lower back hurts, you're overloading your kidneys. I would challenge people try to eat enough protein until that happens. I have never seen it happen. I, and I don't want anybody listening to that to go, man, what a jerk. You know, he's trying to tell me to get sick. I'm just telling you, I've never seen somebody eat so much protein that they had that ailment bother them. So with that being said, the opposite happens. I see people increasing their protein intake. 
their strength goes through the roof, their mm-hmm. endurance goes through the roof, their immune system goes through the roof, they sleep like a baby and they're leaner and they're like, whoa, I like this protein thing. Well, yeah, what do you think Ben's been trying to tell you for six months? It works. <laughs> it works, you know? And that's it, That's why, like you said earlier, it really is simple. If you shop the perimeter, you're going to get fruits and vegetables, all your protein sources, and you're pretty, you're 99% done. You go in and get your water or depending, I don't know if you guys have filtration systems in your houses or whatnot, but, you know, good, clean, filtered water ice cold, fresh squeezed lemon in it to work on the alkalinity and pH of the blood and eat fruits and vegetables and lean protein every two hours from the minute you wake up till before you lay down to go to bed and watch the body fat drop. Yeah. It, it works so well. But here's the thing, Ben. Half of your listeners will hear it and do it. Half of them will go, nope. Why? This is where I really get frustrated with human beings because it's so simple. They go, Oh, Ben's got something up his sleeve. He's going to kind of pull the rug out from underneath me. <laughs> no, last time I checked, Ben doesn't own the, the fresh market. He doesn't own the grocery store. I don't see where he's getting any financial kickback from telling you to go to the store, <laughs> and chop the perimeter and get the hell out. Yeah. I, I don't see where Ben's got a vested interest there, but in all fairness to those who do think it's too easy why do they feel that way? Because some dickhead of a trainer has bait and switched them enough times that they don't trust anybody. Yeah. And that goes back, like you said, we have a moral responsibility to educate. And once we can earn someone's trust, we can guide their efforts. That's all we're trying to do. I never want to bring someone into our program with the idea of keeping them forever. Mm. I want to empower you with knowledge and send you on your way. Go be a street soldier and give them the information forward. Yeah, exactly. You know, we make our money on trying to get people to become the top 1% of whatever they want to do, whether it's amateur racing or pro racing, wakeboarding, horse jumping, it doesn't matter. But to go out and give the truth about nutrition, health, and wellness, and to empower some street soldiers to go out and share that with their family and their friends, I know it sounds kind of cliche-ish, but we're out changing the world. And, and I hope people will trust what you've been telling them because that's really what it's all about. It is simplistic. Eat real raw food, drink lots of water, half your body weight in ounces of water a day, and you're golden. Yeah. Now, again, that half your body weight in ounces of water, I've actually got our web programmers. I sent them a request on Monday. They're taking our sweat rate calculator, and we're actually converting it to liters and kilos. And I'll send that to you as soon as I get those done. In fact, um, if you would do me a favor, if you'll send me your email address, I'll send you all the resources we've talked about, sweat yeah, rate calculator, awesome. analysis, food log analysis. They're just Excel spreadsheets. Now, if you look yeah. at the logarithms and the macros, they're really, really cool. I love it. I love the numbers. I don't like to program them, but I like when I see what they <laughs> program them to do. But at the end of the day, your listener can plug in two or three numbers and extrapolate a ton of data. And if they can use it, if they have questions, they can hit you up. If they want to get on a conference call with us, you know, we're happy to answer those questions or maybe we could do a live Q and a, if you've got some people that want to do it, I'd be happy to, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That'd be awesome for sure. Yeah. If anyone's listening, they'd be up for that for sure. And I can forward them those, those documents. I really appreciate that. Absolutely. No, I, I, I don't mind investing the time and the money in them when people are going to really use them. It's, I always say to our kids, 
you know, I don't mind investing in things as long as you use them. I mean, you can see in the back here, we've got, a, we have a total of 11 bikes in our house and we only have four people and it's, <laughs> you know, we have dirt jumpers and we have triathlon bikes and road bikes and BMX bikes and we have all kinds, but all these bikes are well used because we, use, we buy them to use them. You know, we don't put something on a shelf and I didn't invest in the programming for them to sit on my computer. I want to give them to everybody who's willing to use them. <laughs> That's my biggest thing is if you get it, just use it. I promise yeah, it'll yeah. work. Not about Coach Rob. It's not about Moto E. It's not about Ben. It's about, look, we're just here to be conveyors of information, cut through the BS that's out there circulating. And hey, if somebody can improve their health and wellness and they get excited, yeah, they'll go into the performance world and that's where we make our money. Um, but, you know, everybody's got to make a living. I just love doing my job, but we're not trying to bait and switch it like everybody's afraid of. So that's why I love what you're doing. And I appreciate you putting these podcasts out. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. And that, that was one thing I was, you've got the dirt jumper there in the background. I can see, I saw your post about that the other day. Is that a, like a new thing for you, the dirt jumping, or is it something you've been into for a while? Yeah, um, we've actually, I grew up racing BMX. Um, I raced pro up to 87. Um, I got eighth in the world at the uh, IBMXF World Championships. And yeah, then my awesome. dad sent me off to college. And then in college, that's where I got involved in triathlons. I was on the junior development program for triathlon and then I got hit by a car. So I was kicked off the team because I had a pretty bum knee after that. My son growing up, uh, we've always had BMX bikes and we got into moto and stuff like that. So my son likes to dirt jump. He does all the pro big dirt jumps, you know, 20, 30 meters across crazy, crazy stuff. Um, yeah. So we, we like to dirt jump together. Uh, we do triathlons together. We like to ride moto together. Um, you know, we just, we just like to be busy boys. And uh, yeah. my, uh, my wife loves it. She, uh, she supports it a hundred percent. It's uh, it's a lot of fun. We, we enjoy doing it, but uh we're, we're a house full of bikes. That's for sure. We've got a, we've got our Harley street bike. We love anything on two wheels. Well, it's a hard feeling to beat on two wheels, isn't it? Oh my goodness. There's nothing better for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's in your blood. It's always in your blood. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So before we wrap up, mate, I'm mindful of your time, but do you want to perhaps just tell listeners where they can find out about that camp you are doing later, later in the year in Australia? Yeah, thank you very much. If you go to completeracingsolutions.com on the one of the drop-down bars at the top under programs, you'll see the Australian performance camps. Um, just to make sure nobody's confused and frustrated with me, we have a level one where we take the physics of a motorcycle, which I consider a moving gyroscope. We marry that against the physiology of strength, flexibility, etc., And we take that out to the track over the course of three days. And the average time improvements anywhere between three and five seconds a lap by the time people left the camp. That's how much they improved. And what I want to encourage people to do is if you come to the level one, which we're going to do, we're going to be there for three weeks. The first week that we're there, we're going to do our level ones. And I don't want this to sound condescending. We, we won't put somebody in a level two unless, unless they've come to level one, because there's an assumption that, there's some baseline information that they really know and are implementing. So just keep that in mind. If you look at it, you may be a, a pro rider and go, Oh, I should be able to be in level two. It's not that I'm saying a dig on your perform your ability to ride a bike. It's the way yeah. I want you to approach a corner or approach a jump. If that's not in place, my level two won't make any sense to you, but we're looking at coming at the beginning of Jan uh, July, excuse me. 
uh, will be at Mount Kimla. It's $500 US, uh, Australian for three full days. And we're going to give them, when they come to the camp, when they leave, they'll get a 12-week training program. And that training program is strength, flexibility, nutrition, hydration. We get into some sports psychology. We do some conference calls like we're doing right here with the group that comes in. We don't want to just come in, give you a ton of information and vacate. We want to make sure that we're making ourselves readily available. So we're, we're going to limit it only to 15 bikes just for quality control. So um, if you go to our website, you'll see where there's a drop-down box. It has the complete itinerary. I don't care if you're on a 65 or you're on a 450. I promise you the camp will, it will apply to what you're wanting to do. I'm not really worried about arguing if you have one finger or two fingers on the front brake. That's not kind of my, that's not my, uh, my wheelhouse. I like to look at the physics of your body and the biomechanics of your body and then complement that against what's going on on the motorcycle. So we look at uh, being a riding coach in a completely different context because we do bring the physiology. Then you take that back to your pro motocross coach and he can tell you where he wants your foot because now you can get it there and keep it there. So um, that'll be a lot of fun. But yes, thank you for that. If they just go to Complete Racing Solutions under programs, you can get all of that. Uh, please do me a favor. If they heard from the sh heard about the camp from your show, when they because they'll be asked to go to contact at coachrob.com, do me yeah. a favor and let me know that it came from your your show. Um, what we'll do while we're there in Australia is we'll do kind of like a little special get together with just your group of guys. Uh, we'll, we'll kind of throw a bone to your listeners. Maybe we'll go to dinner together. Maybe we'll go to a writing session over the weekend or something. Um, but I'd like to throw that bone out to your listeners. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Rob. Thank you. I think that I love what you're doing with that, with working on the, the physiological and the biomechanical side of it, because that's so important, I think. And my, uh, not to take anything away from other coaches, but it's a, there's a lot more than just breaking late and accelerating earlier. <laughs> That's hey, for sure. Amen to that. Yep, <laughs> amen to that, exactly. No, it's it's good stuff all the way around. And, you know, how far are you north of Mount Kemble? Did you say you're a couple-day drive? No, I'm below Mount Kemble. We're down in Victoria. So, yeah, it's up north for us. So it's probably, it would be, yeah, it's a bit over a day's drive, yeah, probably. Okay. Up there. But I'd, I'd, like I said at the start, I'd definitely like to get along to that for sure. Perfect. Well, and, and what we can do is um, you and I could talk about this off the record, but, you know, maybe you and I can look at some dates. Uh, maybe, you know, Michaela and I can fly down, maybe spend a couple of days with you and some of your people at your gym and, you know, get a network there. And, you know, like I said, I, I appreciate everybody who supports you and, and has trust and confidence in you. I love everything that you're doing. I think you're, you're one of the best there. And I hope everybody listening understands what a gem they have in you. Um, I just hope that they they trust the system and the process because you know what you're doing and you're doing it the right way. So I tip my hat to you, buddy. Thank you very much, Rob. The feeling is very mutual. <laughs> Thank Perfect. you. Thank you and, very much. and just to the listeners, yeah, if, if you want to get in touch and, and get a copy of those uh, documents that Rob's, talk, Rob's talking about, just let me know, send me a message, and we can hook you up with them as well. Absolutely. And I can't emphasize it enough. These resources are there for you guys. If you don't ask for them, we can't get them to you. So please lean on us. As I always say, we, we build these services for you guys and then we want to see you guys ripping around the track and having fun. That's what makes us happy. So uh, yeah, exactly. keep us posted how we can help in any way. Thank you, Rob. I love that. You're welcome, Ben. Thank you for your time and uh, we'll look forward to chatting with you soon.
Appreciate it, Rob. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Ben Greenwood High Performance Podcast. For more information on this podcast episode, please check out the show notes and to check out more of my content, shoot over to my website, www.100percentstrength. That's www.100percentstrength.com. 100% strength to us means giving 100% effort to any challenge we face whether that's in life, whether that's in the gym, or whether that's out on the track. So you can check out some of our free content online. We've got a blog there. We've also got an email list you can subscribe to to stay up to date with events, tips and tricks on a weekly basis. And I'd really appreciate if you'd give us a follow on Facebook or Insta too. Until the next episode, give it 100%. Peace out.